We've been uh, traveling through the book of Isaiah over the last uh, probably three, four months, maybe a little bit more, I don't remember now. But we've seen a nation that has been uh, called by God, that has been brought to God, and now God takes action against this nation. This nation has been, been brought against with other nations that has come against it. Um, they've sided with other nations and looked for solace within those nations. And it's cost them. And today we're going to find out how God redeems this nation, how they call them back. So what I'd like to do is start out and talk a little bit about Israel in the introduction and then get into the text. Um, Israel is a covenantal people of God. They were called out by his providence and spoken to in antiquity through the prophets. Called to faith and to be a light to the world. Salvation from God's wrath would come to this nation through the promised Messiah. His name is Jesus, and his message is the gospel, meaning good news. Jesus redeemed his people from the wrath of God by paying the debt that we owed. His death meant redemption for all who put faith in him and him alone. God, by his grace, offers salvation to all who put their trust in Christ, a transforming faith in both heart and spirit, leading us to love God and others and ultimately to worship. No doubt here that God chastens Israel for her sin, but ultimately provides and protects her for salvation. God fulfills his promise to Israel, where he said in Jeremiah 30, 22, I will be your God, and you will be my people. In chapter 27, God removes evil and his wrath and establishes his sovereignty over all nations. He praises his people and gives justice to the ungodly. He measures out his discipline for his holy purposes and protects Israel from her enemies. Chapter 27, my lessons points are three, a sovereign sword, a remnant redeemed, and a joyous Jerusalem. Start with a sovereign sword. Let me read verse 1 in chapter 27. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Verse 1 starts out with this this beast, this mythological creature that Lou spoke a little bit about last week on. And this mythological creature uh, surrounding it uh, is a, the embodiment of evil. Isaiah's vision of a fatal battle between God and this sea monster Leviathan. He describes a serpent as twisted, a serpent and a dragon. A, a mythological creature born out of folklore. Now, the mythological creature Leviathan was something that the Jews would have known about. Remember, as we've studied this book, 
the Jews had taken some of the idols of other nations and their folklore and moved it in to their own religion. And that was the one thing that God had criticized them for. So this wasn't strange to them. Leviathan doesn't give cre- or Isaiah doesn't give credit to this beast as actually existing, but he uses it to represent something to the people. And ultimately, uh, that God destroys this beast. But the analogies that were used here in comparing this, uh, the adjectives that he used, triggered me back to Genesis when he spoke of the servant. For one thing, he called it fleeing. It kind of, kind of got stuck on that word when I read it. Fleeing, why would he use that term? And it just made me think of the deceiver and deception that Satan was when he was called back in Genesis 3 and 3.14. Called it a serpent. That's the term they used for him. A dragon. A dragon would have risen this beast to a powerful creature. He's spoken of three or four times back in the Bible, both in Psalms and in the book of Job. And he was seen as the strongest of creation, yet in evil terms. And that he was a sea creature. So what's that got to do with it, the sea? Well, the sea is an ominous place, and it was at the time for the people of Israel. Remember, we see a lot of agriculture in the Bible. They were an agrarious people. But we also know they were seafaring. We have the stories of fishermen. We have Paul's journeys. But what did the sea represent to this creature? It was even a further ominousness of this beast. The sea was chaotic. It was something they couldn't control. A personal story in my life, the way I see this sea. Um, when I was 18 years old, I arrived at uh, SUNY Oswego, is where I went to college. Our campus was right on Lake Ontario. If you've ever been to any of the Great Lakes, They look like an ocean. You can't see across them. Well, at the end of my first semester, when I went back for my second semester, one day we were on the top floor and we looked out. And we saw the sky lit up in orange over the lake. Now, to give you an understanding of Lake Ontario, it's fresh water so it doesn't freeze, or it freezes, and it froze about a quarter mile out. We'd go play on the ice. You know, whatever college kids did back then, that's enough of that. But um, (laughs) the lake froze about a quarter mile out. Well, there was a young man who was out there taking pictures. And what would happen is the waters would come in and cut up against the shore and then splash high into the air. Well, we went down to the lake as we saw the ambulance and things down there. And there was one of the students from a floor above me who went down to the lake to take pictures. And as the waves, it was a particularly cold and tumultuous day on the lake in January, had sucked him in. And he fell into the water. And as we went out, we could barely see that they had a rope on him. And they were trying to pull him in. And a huge iceberg came in and smashed him up against the shore. And they didn't find him until June. But my point here is, that that picture of water, of the lake, stuck with me. So when I read this, the sea monster, I thought of it too, you know, the ominousness of a lake and the power that this beast would have, and it's something that you can't control. But Isaiah brings us to a really important point here. There's nothing more powerful than God. That's what he was trying to say. 
I, and he, he reveals the power of God by describing his sword as powerful, great, hard, and strong. And that he will use it for the purpose of punishment. What Isaiah was doing was establishing God's sovereignty. And why would that be important? Sovereignty is the supreme power of God. My question to you is, do we believe this? I'll bet if I asked every believer here, if he believed in the sovereignty of God, there wouldn't be one person who wouldn't say, absolutely, I believe it. It's the truth. God is sovereign over all things. But then, let me ask you this. First, God destroys the creator, or God destroys the creation of Leviathan. God proves his sovereignty. We recognize that God is sovereign as believers. But is he really sovereign in our lives? Let me ask you, do you believe he is sovereign over your finances? Do you believe he's sovereign over your marriage and family? Do you believe he's sovereign over your intimacy? Do you believe he's sovereign over your worship? Start to get in our kitchen now. Do we have places in our life where we're keeping God out? Basically saying, you're not really sovereign, but he is. And this was a problem for Israel, as it is for us today. We should have no closed doors to God. Do you believe God should be an aspect of all your life? Is the Lordship of Jesus and the gospel central to you? Has the gospel transformed you to trust God more, to turn these places that you're keeping away from him over to him? God is sovereign, and he slays the dragon, and he'll slay the dragons in your life. The hardship God placed on Israel was never to kill their joy, but to make it complete by finding him. When we defer to God's sovereignty, we actually find joy and peace. As we walk our walk and go through our struggles of life, when we learn to trust God more. Our lives become more joyous when we trust him and we see how he takes us through those trials that life presents us. I know the difficulty of it. I experience myself. But it is a truth. Isaiah's literal description here portrays this beast as an evil power. The narrative leaves the reader with a feeling of awe and fear of this beast. But who's the hero of this story? It's God. And it always is. He is more powerful and eliminates the existence of this embodiment of sin and evil. Isaiah depicts God's supremacy over all creation. And on that day, God will remove this threatening monster from human existence. It's twofold, really. He destroys sin, and at the same time, he reigns as sovereign ruler over all things. Here God shows us that all evil will be punished, and simultaneously, God prepares 
for the redemption of his people, Israel. God purges the world of evil and prepares the way for the redemption of his people. His judgment on the godless is really a testimony to his holiness. God slays the beast Leviathan. Then Isaiah continues the theme in that day. And now he introduces us to a vineyard, a redeemed remnant. Let me read verses 2 through 11. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day, night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay down, lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots. And fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them? Has he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contend with them. He removes them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones, crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing, for the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. I think it would be honest to say these are some difficult verses. Uh, I had to dive hard into them to understand them, and I I pray that I can uh, be clear on them. So uh, let's go for it. We We reflect in this verse of the vineyard. And if you think about it, if you can remember back in chapter 5, there was another vineyard. In this vineyard, God cared for it in the same way. He watered it. He nurtured it. He supplied everything that it needed. But it produced wild grapes. Fruitlessness you couldn't do anything with. And it was condemned. But here we see just the opposite. We see a different vineyard with his blessings upon us, his blessings upon this vineyard. This vineyard is also cultivated and hedged and watered by God. But the difference is, this vineyard is fruitful. Isaiah describes this as a pleasant vineyard. This comparison contrasts unfaithful Israel and faithful Israel. God now pours out his blessings upon this vineyard and his covenant people, those who've trusted in God and remained faithful. God emphasized his care by using the emphatic terms here, I, the Lord, am its keeper. 
I water it, letting you know who is doing this. He then compels us, in the previous verse, to sing of it. God adores this vineyard. I read this and I got the feeling, I know, I I like to sing to my wife once in a while. I'm not sure she feels the same way, but it's an adoration when you love someone, you sing to them or sing about them. That's clearly what God's doing here, raising the level of this, this vineyard, this representation of Israel that he loves to be sung about. And he compels us to do that. His faithful covenant people and most of Israel's oracles have been pronouncements of wrath upon them while still never forgetting his faithful. In chapter 27, Isaiah testifies to God's faithfulness to Israel. Verses 4 and 5. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Isaiah quotes here, I have no wrath. Think about what that means. God's wrath is now expended. He battled for her against her enemies. Now by his grace, he offers her enemies an olive branch of peace if they turn to him. When verse 4 states, I have no wrath, we're compelled to ask, why? What happened? What satisfied God's anger here? The people of Israel look forward to the coming Messiah. God's faithful today. Look back upon him and his completed work. We know this to be called the gospel. We also know that the gospel is the work and person of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ alone is what satisfied the Father's anger. All who put their faith in Christ are brought to repentance. Just before Christ died, he said, it is finished. His work on the cross on our behalf was completed and averted the Father's wrath for all who trust in him. Surely God was pleased with his vineyard who trusted him. What I'd like to do now is ask a couple questions to all of us. Has this gospel brought you to repentance? Has it gone deep into your heart, the work of Christ and what he did for you? Has your heart been changed by the gospel? Is there any different fruit? Are we different today than we were before we knew Christ? When we turn from sin and go into a different direction, we see and we feel the evidence of Jesus in our lives. Although it's true, we still battle with sin in our lives, we are assured that his wrath will be averted because of our faith in Christ's work on the cross. When I work for a friend and a member of this church, Rich Cole, and I travel up to Northville that he lives. And every time that I head up there and I drive along on Route 30, just before I get into the town of Northville, there's a little sign on the road. And the little sign says, Plan B. So I see the little sign, 
and there's a whole bunch of logs that are there next to the sign. And the idea is that in the North Country, it gets really cold up there. And if you don't have heat, you're in big trouble. So the, basically the sign says, listen, you get in trouble. You got plan B right here. Just buy some wood, you know, throw it in. Most of the homes up there have a cooker, you can cook it. Unfortunately, God gave us no plan B. Jesus is the only way. Verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. The vineyard under God's protection now blossoms. A vineyard now productive and healthy. And her influence will affect the other nations around her, we're told here. Isn't that also our calling as Christians? Shouldn't our influence be there for the world to see who we are and what we do and how we believe? Shouldn't we do the same as a light to the world? Isaiah's parable of the vineyard ends and he shifts his focus and reflects on how God deals with Israel now as opposed to her oppressors. Verses 7 through 11. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the days of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones, crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they're broken. Women come and make a fire for them. This is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. Isaiah here contrasts how God dealt with Israel and how, and how he dealt with those who he called to be punished. Here we see Israel and her oppressors were treated differently. We are told they are treated in a measure-by-measure measure response. A fatherly chastisement designed not to break Israel, but to reconcile with her. However, his measures against Israel's enemies were met with everlasting doom here. By God allowing Israel to be defeated by her enemies, God was calling Israel back to faithful covenant. But her attackers, they faced destruction. You see the heart of God for his people. In returning Israel to its covenantal relationship, God also destroys her idols. Verse 9. 
He exiles our enemies with his fierce breath, described as an east wind in verse 8. They would have been known to the Jewish people. These would have been called the Sirocco. They were a dry, scorching wind that destroys habitat and vegetation. Only God can atone for sins. And God says that this will lead to full fruit. Verse 10. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. Verse 10 describes a fortified city. A city built with human defenses and wisdom. This is a man-made city. It is a secular inhabitant. An ungodly place where man rules as his own God. Isaiah describes it as deserted and forsaken. A wilderness where animals graze. But now, it's abandoned by man. And now, a mere pasture. Verse 11 goes to the point of the godliness. Godlessness, excuse me. They are a people that lack understanding. These were a people who did not want God and leaned on their own understanding. In essence, they were their own God. A place that is a wasteland. A place that is scavenged with only dunnage to offer. And Isaiah declares that their maker will have no compassion or favor on them. Apparent here is the distinction Isaiah portrays between faithful and faithless. A fruitful vineyard and a useless vineyard. Between idolatry and true worship. The contrast between these two groups is evident in the New Testament. Matthew 25, 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It is a distinction that God will sort out God's people and the ungodly upon Christ's second coming. God redeems his own through grace. God toiled for them and chastised for them for their redemption. A wasteland awaits the faithless. I'd like to read a quote by one of the commentators that kind of summed this up today, Jail Mackey. Jail Mackey said this, Yahweh moderates his dealings with his people because the purpose of his action is to restore them never to eliminate them. In his fatherly compassion towards those who are his people, he will not always reprove, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Isn't that beautiful? Because what we deserve is destruction too. 
or repay us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, 9 through 10. The discipline of God is to be considered one of the privileges of being included in the Father's family. I believe that last quote he made is very true, but I find it difficult in my life, I don't know about you, to consider it a privilege when I'm being disciplined. I inherently in my mind know it's true, but never seem to like it. But then after it's done, and the fruit comes forward, and I've learned the lesson God was trying to teach me, or been raised, it's always humbling. And I thank God for it. He restored, pe- he restored people make clear that their repentance is genuine by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3.8. Inner spiritual reorientation makes itself visible in our outward conduct. And in this way, it is possible to live lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called. If we truly are of faith, we should have fruit, and it should be visible. Others will see it, and you will know it. It'll be there. God calls his people to be fruitful. We've seen this in the contrast between these two vineyards. One that produced wild grapes, And then one that produced the fruit that was pleasing to God. God desires our worship. And when we do it, it is most joyous to us. Worship to him brings us joy. We'll see this now in a redeemed Jerusalem. The last two verses of this teaching. Verses 12 and 13. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. God gathers his people one by one. This is a harvest, a gathering up and gleaning of all of God's people. God tells Isaiah that his people will be redeemed. This goes beyond Israel's borders. It includes the scattering in the lands of Assyria and Egypt. Isaiah refers to the Israelites who were left or exalted or exiled and were no longer able to live freely in foreign lands, never abandoned or forgotten by God. The trumpet will sound, and all God's people are gathered to worship on that holy mountain. The final picture of a restored people and their covenant God, together with God in his house. The final verse assembles God's people for worship. But God will not tolerate idols. In verse 9, he destroyed them. In our God-given nature, we value and hold at high esteem things we love, 
and above all, should be God. All sin is an attack on the worship of God. And God will not be devalued. Our worship in that day will be eternal. In the meantime, we must make worship a priority in our lives. When we love God and others, it truly is a form of worship. We are called to worship and as assembly for the glory of God, like we are doing today. We also worship when we are obedient and repentant of our sin. We should let our lives be a testimony to the glory and greatness of God. Do you recognize the importance of worship in your life? Is that something that you've made priority for the glory of God? Do you recognize your calling towards it? Does your life reflect the life of worship? When we leave here, are we someone different? When we go in the world, do we look like the world? Or do we look like God's people? Do do others know that we are believers in Jesus? They should. Is corporate worship a priority in your life? Does the gospel compel you to move towards worship? Does the idea that Christ died for you, gave his life to pay a debt that you owed, move you to worship? Our worship will be the fruit that is evident in a pleasing vineyard like God talks about here. Chapter 27 Establish God's complete sovereignty over all of creation. And that he destroys evil. And God's going to end it all one day. Israel is compared to a vineyard. And here it's lifted up. Are we a vineyard of good fruit? Are there any idols in our lives that we need to eliminate things that we place above God? Does the gospel hold up, motivate us to hold fast to adversity and bring us to repentance? It should. We should find our strength in Christ to move forward in any adversity we may face. Does Christ's work on the cross, taking our wrath, Lead us to repentance, turning from sin and now going on in a different direction. Does it lead us to share the gospel with others? Matthew 28, it's our calling to go out to all the world, teach them everything that he has taught us, to represent the love of Christ and the gospel to a dying and lost world. That is our mission field. Wherever we go, we should do that. As the band comes up, Isaiah repeats the theme in that day. He establishes God's time. 
And we know that there's a day coming. God's day. So I'd like to ask you this. There's going to be a day when, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27. There's going to be a day when. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builder, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 There's going to be a day when and the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelations 19.9 There's going to be a day and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7.23 But there's going to be a day when his master said to him, Well done, O good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25 And I want to ask you, What are you going to hear on that day? Jesus, your Lord and Savior? It's a question we all need to answer. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for truth. Thank you for salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, on a day of gratitude that you've given us a blessed nation, we also have salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. May our worship be honor and loving to you. In Jesus' name, amen.